Allegheny College? Yeah, okay. How close are you to that? Um, Is that the other direction? My sense of direction is terrible. Because my girlfriend's from Conneaut Lake. Okay, never heard of that. Yeah. Um, but probably, I don't know, I would estimate three hours. Okay. But that's with no real general knowledge of that area. What about Ohio? Like four hours. How do you feel about Ohio? Ohio. Ohio. <laughs> Ohio's just like a hellscape of everything that's wrong with America. Plus corn. Yeah, I mean, what, it's just got like crippling economic depression and terrible drivers and the, the Bigfoot apparently who lives down in Ohio meme videos. <laughs> it's like, down in Ohio, swag like so now I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out which one's worse now, Ohio or Indiana. No, it's Ohio. It's Ohio because Indiana's just like nothing. It's like just like mm-hmm. uh, pure unbroken fields of corn. Uh, and, and then and then they have like the Indian version of Annapolis. So they kind of know that they're nothing. They're not trying to exactly. Act no, like, well, Ohio like, is just Indiana like Indiana is not influencing the world whatsoever. Ohio is like actively making the world the worst place to be. In. Yeah, they had like what twenty nine electoral votes or something crazy like that. Yeah, like a very like deciding amount. Yeah. So this is welcome back to the politics podcast. Awesome. <laughs> um, this is season two, so we got to bring the A game here. Yeah, it is season two. Like, yeah, I like so yeah, you know. People are wondering. People are probably like wondering where we've been. Uh, I was possessed by a demon uh, for a couple months. I got stuck in Narnia. Yeah. So met the lion, the witch, and they gave me a terrible wardrobe. So. Yeah, I could tell. Did you meet Santa Claus? <laughs> no. Isn't it weird that Santa Claus just shows up? I met Krampus though. Ooh, Krampus. Krampus. Isn't it weird that Santa just shows up in that movie and gives like a a thirteen year old child a, a broadsword? I thought it was a gun. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think they're to that level. But then again, Santa yet. is the only man that people are willing to let come into their house and empty his sack. Well, I mean, depends what circles you run in. Yeah. Come on, man. Like, we don't, we don't go blue. That's the lazy man's humor. I mean, I thought a sack was red. Look, when you come to the top of the Washington Monument here, right, this is the eagle's nest. Wait, you actually made it to the top of the monument? That's where we record, pray. Oh, that explains the scenery you see right now. Yeah, like, so everything I do, so, yeah, for the listeners at home, like, every time Prey and I record, I, like, before we start recording, you know, because he's afraid of heights, this is the biggest reveal, I will kind of blindfold him and take him up to the top of the Washington Monument where we record. Yeah, for all the listeners out there, he kind of just blindfolds me every single time we record, I have no idea where I'm taking, and it's taking to, so, uh... Yeah, every single time. I'm just kind of, like, in, like, his, like, whole graces, and hopefully I don't get killed. Well, yeah, so, but I'm a very okay, gentle, now. I'm a very gentle and kind individual, so, of yeah. course, you know, top of the empire, or not, the, or top of the, <laughs> Washington. The, the top of the Washington Monument, and we are joined today by our guest, George Washington. Oh, uh, so I grew up on a horse farm, mm-hmm. and by horse farm, I mainly mean a farm where there were horses. Um, it was not, our Income was not solely dependent on horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that much. But I was thinking, I was like sitting at my desk and I was thinking, you know, like horses, types of horses. You got your you got your Choctaw ponies. Mm-hmm. You got your Arabian horses. You got your Spanish mustangs. And what film has all of those types of horses and the painted horse? It's Viggo Mortensen's 2004 epic, Hidalgo. Mm. So I'm going to call myself Hidalgo. George Washington Hidalgo. Yes, that's, that, that's actually... Okay. So... I also thought you were going to go with, like, War Horse. Or... War Horse. War Horse? Where is my War Horse? Yeah, I mean... I have not watched the film. No, me neither. No, I think, like, Benedict Cumberbatch was in, like, the the play version of War Horse, which is like, it started as a play before it became a movie, which is strange because it's like four men playing the horse together, and they kind of just have a, a horse apparatus, and I feel like it'd be hard to be emotionally invested in just like a strange mechanical horse. No, I, I thought they were going to be like 
Correct. And the horse, like most you know, Halloween costumes are? Yeah, like there's a front and a back of the horse, but more it's just like they hold pieces of the horse and they kind of clickety-clack it along the stage, at yeah. least from what I've seen. And then there's a, a little British boy going, War Horse! Where are you, War Horse? I mean, it's not called, the, the name of the horse is not War Horse, but it's essentially the gist of the yeah. play. I don't think know what they say about horses. They don't stop. They just keep going. They keep going. Horses don't stop. They keep going. But no, and that so also brought me back about like uh, about Benedict Cumberbatch, like in because there's recent news about like uh, his family's atrocities in the Barba or in Barbados or one of the Caribbean islands. Um, so much so that like when he was going into acting, his family legit said, "You have to change your name." Oh. Like, you cannot go by your, like, actual name as, like, your stage name because then people will find out about our past. What was it, like, um... Yeah, what did he do? I've never heard of His family this. basically owned slaves in, like, either, I think it was Barbados or one of the Caribbean islands. Um, you know, horrid slave, like, masters in of itself. Um, so, yeah, it's basically... It came about when, like, the official government of that, like... Again, I want to say Barbados, but I'm pretty sure it's Barbados. Basically kind of came out and... Uh, essentially, like, told them that they they require reparations. Mm. He's got that Doctor Strange money. Yeah. yeah, and much like Doctor Strange, she spelled out there. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the Southern Fried Humanitarian Podcast. The only podcast where your two co-hosts are humanitarian workers from the South. I am Sam, and I'm joined, as always, by my faithful co-host, Prey. What do you do, people? Hey, hey, hey. So, welcome to Season 2 of the show. A Mr. George Washington Hidalgo, uh, who apparently used to be a horse, is that right? Um, yeah. I mean, there are things about me which I feel are horse-like. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I used to work on a horse farm, and by work on a horse farm, I mean I grew up there, so I had no choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. um, mostly shoveling, uh, shoveling poop, but you know, there were, there, were, there were other things as well, like cleaning stalls, mostly filled with poop, so mm. it was a very dynamic and enriching experience on the whole, I would say. Nice. Yeah, I also um, <clears throat> I also spent time on a farm when I was younger, uh, more chickens. But I do know how to like shoe a horse and stuff, and yeah, Sounds getting like Farmer Joe's out here. Yeah, old McDonald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I will say one thing that like I I would assume that like my summers were worse than yours. Um, I mean, like I feel like we probably share the backbreaking manual labor mm -hmm. aspect. You probably have the leg up on me in the humidity and horrific uh, temperatures bearing down on you aspect. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's what I was getting at. <laughs> so, yeah, but, well, you know, we're happy to have you. Really happy to have you here, George. Um, so today, what did we, what did you want to get into today, Bray? You know, honestly, I feel like since we all work in the humanitarian sector and, uh, all in relatively the same department as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we all have experience with, like, you know, the employment side of our own agency, so we can kind of talk about, out of all of us, I'm pretty sure you have the most experience in... Yeah, I'm kind of an old hat. Um, I have a senior, you know, in my job title, which means I do the same job as everybody else, except I'm old. Um, so... I mean, I relatively, you're not old. No, I mean, I, I'm comparatively old. I'm not, like the guy Indiana Jones finds at the end of the last crusade, but I am I am pretty dusty. Oh, on a side note, that's what the S because a lot of times I see S like the S E S. Oh S E S. So I'm yeah. just like always thought it was like the super E S like the I'm very much Clark Kent. I am not not Superman. The senior. Just, just take off the glasses and just swoop your hair down. Yeah, it was the senior. You know. That's what I meant, not senior. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that is how I introduce myself to Spanish-speaking clients as senior employment specialists. <laughs> yeah. But like, what was, what's one thing that you've always thought about, like, 
employment when it comes to the whole grand scheme of uh, the resettlement process? I feel like employment, I mean, it just, it's obviously like vital, right? Like you need to, unfortunately in the world we live in, you need to work in order to survive. Um, Actually just to live too. Yeah, no, like things like water, food, they're not uh, basic human rights that people um, throughout the world have access to, and even to, even in, you know, America. Um, again, like I, you guys are probably left, you know, you're pretty left-leaning. Like I would say I'm pretty left-leaning, and I think, you know, even extended to say like a roof over somebody's head is a basic human right that should be ensured, yeah. um, which is not, you know, a commonly held belief in America. Um, and so I, I think it is vital. I think Specifically in resettlement work, though, it falls in a weird kind of gray area in terms of like the work intensity because it is something you need to figure out like almost immediately. Um, but at the same time, it's not like being, you know, a caseworker or a social worker where you have to be like keyed into the case like a hundred percent of the time, all the time, and you know, you're resolving like medical issues and, um, you know sort of things that have like a direct like I need to, to like I'm going to die without this yeah. not not to be dramatic but you know in some cases it can't be that excessive and um, so employment is kind of like in a weird gray area where it's like yeah you got you have to be keyed in and you got to be on top of things but at the same time um, there is a little you know leeway and latitude and there's this give and take with the client on on helping them like find the right job fit for them in the United States, which is interesting. Yeah, and there's also kind of like you have to kind of have a callus. You have to like a callus to their situation almost, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it's definitely like a lot of. Um, I mean everything is like a numbers game. Even like working as a citizen of the United States, it's a numbers game. It's like weighing how much your job pays you versus the expenses versus you know I live in this area. This area costs this much jobs in this area pay this much and these calculations and um, coming to like America as like a refugee you're not aware of like any of that context you you know have some say in where you end up but it's like you know people end up in these very high cost areas and coming into the United States as like a, a refugee with um, potentially like low English proficiency and um, they might not even have like a formal work background and it's like all right you know here you are welcome to the united states your cash benefits barely cover anything you need to start working immediately um hope you enjoy working in this you know manual labor job that pays you barely anything and um it is like the the thing it's like we have to do that calculation like for people sometimes it's like like i want you to be happy and i want you be, to be comfortable but at the same time like the end of the day you need to pay your rent and it's kind of like figuring out and striking that balance and I think that's kind of where the the counseling and the coaching aspect comes in and makes things difficult yeah yeah I think my thing is also like the time crunch uh depending on the case as well because again there's only a certain lot of the time for like the rent is wholly on them and, mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of like the main motivational drive on getting them employed it's because we don't want them to be homeless because that's very easy to do in the U.S. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like, I, I wish, you know, there was like a kinder word for it, but it's just like the predatory nature of capitalism. And it just, you know, it, it, it breaks my heart to think, you know, that there are these people coming over, you know, escaping these difficult situations where they were uh, fighting for their life and their survival in one way, and then they get over here and they're fighting for their life and their survival in a different way. It's just um, sort of you go from situations where there may be war or conflict to this thing where the economic realities that you have to face are, are make life, you know, as difficult just in a different way. Yeah, so in a sense they basically don't really have the time to breathe from no, going from one tragedy and traumatic experience to a whole new tragedy and traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Again, that's the scary thing in this was something I always like keep in mind when I was like working with these clients, which is that they may have a lot of reservations about starting work because again, this is gonna be a whole different culture. They are not familiar with the language. They also have that sense of fear of like, how is this gonna work out? How am I actually supposed to communicate with these people if we don't speak the same language? This is like 
Now, so many questions about like the logistics of it all, because again, they come from a place where a lot of um, work is kind of consolidating like big denser areas rather than the U.S. where for us, it's kind of car centric. Or just even like, um, like I was thinking a lot about, we have clients that are from, uh, you know, like Afghanistan who have very large, who tend to have typically very large families. And that makes sense if the primary, if the primary source of work in your area is agriculture, because, you know, more kids, more hands to work the agriculture, you get it up. Healthy yeah. farmers will probably know more about that. And then exactly. Well, so uh, my, I grew up with sisters and they never had to do I, yeah, but you know, but you know what, I, but you know what I mean. Like that's, so when you come, so all of a sudden, hey, we've destabilized your entire country and culture and way of life, and now uh, you have to like, and now you're coming to the United States. And you're living in a two bedroom house, and there are eight of you. Yeah, and I think it's just like, you know, I one other thing I, I'd probably like to talk about with you guys. Um, if you haven't already covered it, is, uh, is self-care um, within the humanitarian context. And it's just, I think about that uh, so often, you know, just the idea of coming from this place of, you know, male privilege, white privilege, um, privilege in terms of like the place on earth where I was born. And I, you know, I go home at night and I think about how I'm going to make ends meet and how I'm going to juggle like the various responsibilities of my life in terms of my you know family and romantic relationships and um and then you know you start thinking about um you know the things refugees are going through you know sitting at home not working with your eight kids that you have to provide for your spouse that you know you kind of have to help acclimate to this new environment and you know maybe struggling in their own way and it's like it doesn't you know, invalidate the experiences that I have, but at the same time, it's like, it's, it's so difficult to imagine yeah. just the struggle of that situation. Yeah, just comparatively, it's like, it's not quite the same. There's a whole different, like, there's different things for different people um, relating to that. Another thing that I also kind of think is like the culture shock of like, you know, of working in the States. Because uh, one of the big things that we're also told to like counsel on clients is just like advocating for a two household, like two income household. Because um, a lot of times like clients are very much hesitant towards having like their wives work, you know, that patriarchal like uh, mumbo jumbo. And so like they will be adamant of like their wife will not be working. And it's also maybe out of bare necessity too because like they have small children. Getting childcare in itself is difficult. <coughs> even if like you're going getting help through the government if both parents are trying to work they will still tell you no and so the whole prospect of getting child care or daycare it's gonna be rather expensive and so some of that patriarchal moment will still have to play an effect and then like that also just hinders like i feel like the women in the, in the refugee community because they're not given the same amount of exposure or like ability to gain experience as the male counterparts, and they both kind of really need it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the thing that, and the th- and the the worst part about it is like, the f- the stories we hear about uh, refugee women or humanitarian immigrant women are the ones of the single mothers, who have to do all this. You know, like uh, an organization, another organization reached out to us and asked about a store, asked for. A story about a specific uh, refugee female uh, case that we had, and if we could like kind of provide them with a little bit of like details, right? Yeah. So essentially, um, with for a lot of you listeners that don't really know about like either the humanitarian sector or nonprofit sectors, a lot of times when you're um, discussing like with your donors or grantees about your work, they typically you know they will love the numbers, but what really what really gets you be able to pull on the, those heartstrings are the stories. So, but that's just how like, but that is just kind of how people like communicate and relate to things. Yeah, and it's also just like the best way because if you can say we did X amount this year, mm-hmm. uh, that's fantastic. But if you get a story of like why this is important, and just kind of like wrapped it in a sense that like 
it's like a Harry Potter novel, mm-hmm. then of course they're gonna be like, oh man, this is such great work. We're gonna give you more money. So, but again, it's also kind of highlighting on the fact that like, thing like, success for refugee women are typically overlooked by successes overall because they're always dominated by men, um, and usually it's it's always coming from a place of like necessity in my experience with the women, because it's not like them being a power two parent household. Typically, uh, it's not always the case, but like typically, it's like if it's a two parent household, you know, the wife typically would not want to work. Um, but for a lot of single mothers, it's they need to work. There's no like, oh, I want to, I want to be a part of, you know, the society. I want to be a part of helping my husband with the household expenses. No, it's like if I don't do this, me and my kids are out in the streets. Mm-hmm. That's right. So. Yeah, I appreciate the I appreciate the conversation we're having, and I feel like it's a conversation that needs to be had. But um, I don't think it's a conversation for three males to basically just. Yeah, so I kind of want to veer more towards like the. I kind of want to veer like kind of like kind of get us back on track to like the self care aspect of all yeah. this. I appreciate when you go off on this, oh, yeah. but we gotta like. But I feel like my role here is sort of the to rein us in. Yeah, so. Yeah, so let's go back to the self-care. Yeah, so, um, yeah, George, what do you do to, like, how do you, how do you, okay, let's say, you know, we have, like, a... What are your recommendations for, like, good self-care? Or let's say, or, or let's say this, you have a, you have an, you have an, here's a scenario, because stories, right, that's how we relate, and that's how we can tug at the heartstrings. Let's tug at George's heartstrings. Okay, I'm ready so, to be tugged. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... It is, uh, you have an in- so you have an intern who's been assigned under you. Uh, this intern just finished, just finished their undergrad and is starting to work in the humanitarian sector and just got off, uh, just got off of work or just got off of a call after a very long day with someone who was, uh, very angry about their SNAP benefits lapsing through no fault of their own through a gu- through like a clerical error in the government. Uh, this person's like, hey, George, look, I'm like, I'm like, I'm really stressed out, you know, even though I, I still live with my parents, but like, what, what would you recommend me do to like, take care of myself on this? So I think the idea of like the intern specifically is interesting, because obviously, as employees with interns, we kind of have a responsibility to them to ensure that they have like this enriching and engaging experience. So I'll start with that aspect and then I'll get more into like the self-care aspect. I think it's like very important for humanitarian workers who rely on uh, volunteer work or or intern work. Um, And unfortunately the reality of uh, just funding means a lot of our intern work is unpaid, which I'm not a fan of, I'll state that clearly now. Um, I think that like we as the employees like we're getting paid to do this we have the the experience like the professional development we should be acting as uh insulators to them and we want to you know it they're these are adults you know coming out of college like you said a lot of the time and we want to you know help them understand like the realities of this work so Um, I think it is important that, you know, on occasion they maybe be exposed to like more intense emotionally charged things like you're saying, but, um, you know, at the same time we, it's important, it's contingent upon us as, you know, their, um, their employer to talk to them and say like, how are you doing after that, you know, that sounds like a difficult situation, like talk with me about how that call went and to, if they feel like they need the latitude to step back from that, like give them the latitude to step back from that. I feel like that's always a big discussion I always do with, like, you know, interns, especially, like, during the interview of, like, what are their self-care, like, uh, techniques. Because even if, like, even if they're not going into the humanitarian field itself, self-care is actually really important in every job or field that you ever get into. Because, again, you're going to be burnt out through whatever work you're going to be doing, whether it be humanitarian or just, like, straight up, like, office administrative work. There's only a certain amount of hours you can put in before like your brain just stops so i think having good self-care routine is actually important because like the ability to disconnect from a work and not because again i'm not i've always tried to like work on my self-care because again there are moments where like i wake up in the middle of the night with a panic attack about not doing something for a client and i'm just like 
that's on my mind so like I can get back into the office and try to get that thing done so yeah I think um, I think you kind of touched on like a very important thing there like an aspect of self-care in the humanitarian sector and then refugee resettlement work you know as part of that larger sector um, is we feel like this sense of uh, responsibility for our clients and you're like keyed in constantly um, you know I, I always tell the story about I got a phone call from a client uh, at 3 a.m. on Christmas morning um, asking me for the number of a different employee who works at our office and you know that's the thing is like I could have just ignored that phone call but at the same time you know what if he was you know bleeding out on a sidewalk somewhere and he was the only person you know he could think I was the only person you could think to call and you said you have you know you run those scenarios over and over in your mind like am I truly going to be able to to distance myself from this you know in the way I need to recover and, and that's kind of a a difficult thing to do and I think you know really the thing that I think is most helpful is for me is when you work with these clients you kind of um, you know you think of it as being in like a framework it's like here's the things that are, are my responsibilities to help you um, here's how I'm gonna try and go above and beyond to help you and then you know beyond that when you get to like the really difficult situations like um, you know like evictions like rental support stuff is, is the one that I've faced the most and it's you just you identify you know resources and opportunities for them to get that rental support you try and help them find work or get more hours if you know they aren't working already and you kind of just help them along you know this kind of spine of things that you can do but once you reach the end of that spine the thing that is hard for people to learn and I think that they need to learn is going I've done everything I can I fulfilled my obligation it's out of my hands now mm -hmm. and I think it's really hard to do that in the resettlement space but you have to do that or you're going to drive yourself crazy yeah yeah it's like uh there's like a i've heard it described as like compassion overload mm. you know like you only have this like or like a think of it like a bank account like you have a certain amount of like compassion that you can draw on and you know compassion is shown to you or you show it to yourself and that you know puts more in your compassion bank account but then, you know, we have to, like, kind of draw on that a lot. So we have to really focus on recovery. So I've heard it described as, like, uh, kind of how, like, people who play, like, football, for example, have to, like, spend a lot of time, like, on their body bodily recovery because it's very rough on your body. For us, I feel like it's kind of like that, but, like, just emotionally, you know? Yeah, I definitely feel that. I think it's also because, like, we also have, like, we work with these clients more like more often than not and so we actually have like faces to the names rather than just like a regular because like if it was just like a regular schmegler like you know government job we would just see names and not really think too much we like you know we've see, seen their faces we've heard them speak we've basically heard their life story at mm -hmm. that point and so there's you know there's like a level of like you know we feel some type of way about them we care about their like well-being but at the end of the day, like, we were always kind of, like, I've seen a lot of people put themselves, like, back and just trying to keep, like, all their clients happy and supported. And that's always terrible because, like, it's a detriment to yourself and that can be a detriment to the clients later on because you're not going to be fully effective mm -hmm. working with other clients. Yeah, you're no good to any, you're no good to anyone yeah. if you're not, you know, if you're not present. Well, that's you're not uh, you when you're hungry. Um, no, I mean, that's the thing I always say to, you know, myself and, and to other people who, who work in this space or, or who work in general, it's, um, there's always going to be more work. There's only one you. Mm -hmm. So you sacrificing yourself on the altar of, of work, you know, you're in the humanitarian space, you're doing good work. You're, you're helping people, mm -hmm. but there's always going to be more people to help. And it is kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like an existential kind of thing to think about. But um, 
And I'm curious to, to hear you guys talk about um, this as well. So it's, you know, you bring in those self-care aspects to kind of manage that. Like I go to the, you know, the gym, I, I listen to music, I, you know, go out drinking with friends. Those are my typical kind of decompression activities. But I'm, I'm curious um, from you, Prey, especially, because you're, you're single like me, um, to hear um, when you do this work, um, things also like bleed over into your personal life as well in, in ways that you don't expect. And um, so for me, I was like struck by it recently. Um, you know, I, I use like dating apps primarily to, you know, be involved with people. And I was, you know, like I matched with this girl that I was excited about matching with and I was talking with her and, and messaging with her. And then like it occurred to me, like even though I was interested in her, like when I would get home at the end of the day, and we're talking like you know seven, seven thirty, I'm making dinner, and and she messages me. Even though I'm excited about this person, I'm so exhausted from the work, like the emotional burden and you know the the physical burden, the commute, all that, that I'm like, I'm like, oh my god. Instead of being excited to talk to this person, I'm like oh my God, this is like another thing that like I have to do now. Like I have to deal with this now. And like it, this job makes everything feel like a job. <laughs> yeah, honestly, my simple answer to all that is basically just <laughs> <laughs> Oh, just okay. Copious, copious amounts of <laughs> So, but I do get what you mean. And that was kind of like a problem I had when I first like when I was dating my girl, like when I first got to the resale agency, it was just that like, again, you just feel so emotionally drained by the end of the day. You barely could con like communicate with that person. And like, you know, she wasn't having it either way. Cause like, you know, when you stop that level of communication, she's like, what's going on? Yeah. Like, are you cheating on me or something? Like, no, I'm just I'm tired. And then my uh, previous shot before this, when I was like basically helping um, low income kids uh, in DC, that was even more emotionally draining and also physically draining because those kids just run around and you're just trying to <laughs> hoard them all together and you're just like, I don't understand how parents are able to do this. I don't even understand how teachers are able to do this. They definitely need to be paid more. Government, do your job. Pay them teachers. Are uh, you put the government on blast? <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Come on, Brandon. You got this. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's something I'm I'm still learning how to manage. I think. Uh, I think it's just like that level of decompression is needed. Like, I'm a firm believer. Like every single time I leave work, I always try to have like a moment of like decompression. You know, just taking like you know just radio silence for everybody, and everyone I know knows that like I have radio silence from that time, just so I can just process everything that happened today and just kind of like find a way to relax. Because mm. after that, like after you kind of decompress and get into that relaxing state, like your mind is more free to actually just start doing other things. That's what I also try to do, because like, again, if you also have like other things like hobbies um, or activities, then that always helps out in detaching yourself from what's going on and detaching yourself from that mental exhaustion, because you're just mentally exhausted because you've been doing one thing the whole entire day. And just switching it up to something completely different actually brings a new life to you. Mm. So my experience with this. All right, share your experience. So for me, I try to keep I try to keep gratitude in front of me before anything. Mm. Like I um, keep things like that to me really helps keep things in perspective. Because uh, like I. You know, not to get too, not to get too, not to get too deep, but I've always kind of like, I have like a, I consider myself very lucky to be alive and keeping gratitude for that really helps me like kind of center myself. Mm. Um, I also kind of, it's also important to ask yourself why you got into this field. Um, and I answer that question with, like, I feel, honestly, like, it's a vocation. For me, this is how I feel. Mm -hmm. I feel sort of called to this work right now um, by a power greater than myself. 
I can't tell you what that is. I, I couldn't say exactly what that is, but that's, that's, that's what's true for me, and that's exactly how I feel. Uh, so I feel like I kind of have this sort of... I feel like I can... I feel like if I can mention something, then it can be managed. That's a Fred Rogers quote. Is it? Yeah. No, Mr. Rogers said, when something is mentionable, it becomes manageable. Hmm. Heard that before. I didn't know it was from Mr. Rogers. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I like to... This is the same. Will it be my neighbor, Mr. Rogers? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, King okay. Friday, yeah. Oh, okay. What do you do with the man that you feed? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Yeah. I'm not going to sing the whole song. But Thank you, George. Guy, yeah. But yeah, so uh, I keep like, so first things first, I keep gratitude in front of me. Um, gratitude is the attitude. That is an attitude of gratitude. It's not just a beatitude. <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I, that's where I start. Um, I also kind of, you know, you'll see me doing this. If you ever see me in the office, I... Uh, I do uh, about a 10-minute meditation every morning at the before I do any work. I am, because that's me sort of, that's me tapping into, like, and sort of, like, getting in tune with it. Uh, I follow a spiritual tradition started by the Jesuits called the, like, called the Daily Examine, you know, where you kind of examine your thoughts, give thanks, and sort of look forward to the day, basically. Um, happy to, happy to talk about that more, but I don't want to, like, come off as, like, trying to impose my religion on anyone. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's, I don't feel like that's, I, I'm not a listener, but I don't feel like that's how you're coming across. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not something you want to say as a guest on the podcast that people, other people are listening to. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean, so, like, I kind of go back no, to... No, I meant I'm not a listener as in I'm not actively listening right now. Oh, yeah, I know. Need, like, the people listening to this podcast. The folks are. at home, yes. Yeah, I am an avid listener. Mm-hmm. You hear that, folks? Avid listener. Avid listener. Uh, uh, I'm not trying to push my religion on anyone. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. So I, uh, so I, I think prioritizing what is and isn't uh, something you need to do in your life. You know, like work does not come first for me. Like it just can't. So uh, my own health comes first, because whatever. And I was told, and I tell this to my sisters, I tell this to uh, anyone who will listen, uh, everything you put above your own health, you will lose. So if you can't, you got to put, you got to, you got to prioritize that. So I guess it's just like a, I guess it's a mentality. It's sort of a mindset for me. And, you know, uh, also being able to disconnect and decompress and properly heal. So, like, some techniques I have for that is just kind of, you know, um, I practice the serenity prayer. I probably say it about 20 times a day, you know. And uh, just, like, that, like, real serenity and, like, trying to accept things as they are. Yeah. And I think also um, the attitude is, like, a key, is, like, a key part of it and, and perspective and understanding your blessings but um at the same time I, I will just give the disclaimer i think it's also you know it's important and i've said things of similar ilk earlier but it's important uh in the humanitarian field to recognize like no matter what your client's suffering does not make your own suffering any less valid um not at all they've been in horrible situations you'll never experience but a lot of times you'll be in situations that they'll never experience. And, you know, different people are different people. Mm-hmm. And also... And that's the beauty of empathy. Yeah. You, you don't have to actually experience it to actually feel for somebody. And also another fun another fun thing that helps me out, Rule 62. Here, can I tell us what Rule 62 is? Have you never heard of this? Don't take yourself too seriously. So just have a little bit of levity in, in your work. You know, start a podcast with your work best friend. You know, honestly, I never take myself seriously. I know. You know, just, uh, yeah, and, like, just have, like, a, just joke, like, tell, jo- tell jokes. That relieves stress, you know, laugh. Enjoy things. Like, 
Catch your cat, dog, blizzard. Yeah. Reptile. Yeah. You know, install it. Yeah. You know, just make, you know, talk about horses not being able to stop. You know, go and get that forklift certification. Get your OSHA forklift certification. Wear your PPE. Like, that will give you a smile every single day, knowing that you are OSHA certified. Yeah. As a forklift driver. Yeah, we have our get OSHA. the bragging rights that come with it, too. We have our. And all the women that will jump on you because. Of that OSHA forklift certification. And if you don't swing that way, all the men will also jump on you too. Or the non-binary individual. Non-binary individuals will also will also do that. We we always kind of like talk to our guests about like their upbringing in um, <laughs> state because again, we're Southern Fried Humanitarians. We do like to talk about the South a lot. Yes. Um, so yeah. Not in the South. The South shall rise again statement. More oh. so like you know the South does have its problems. It still has its problems kind of suck but it's our home and no matter what we always like to see it be better yeah but you know at the same time we're also proud to we're also proud of the fact that we grew up where we grew up because it gave us our own like sort of unique cultural identity perspectives and stuff like yes that too it, you know it made us to who we are today got us to this point so you know we're appreciative that that's being our home might even say we have an attitude of gratitude about our one might say longitude that. and latitude. Actually, yeah, that's our dude, <laughs> first like piece of merch. Attitude of gratitude about our longitude and latitude. There you go. Hey, I love it. Don't, worry, don't forget to buy Southern Fried Humanitarian merch on our uh, <laughs> Patreon site. We have a Patreon site? We're going to. Oh, yes, we oh, are. There you go. I like it. Mm. Um, members also get added content and bonus jokes that we had to edit out. Yes. Okay. Like, so. Yeah, like having and and don't forget a big old spicy. I know. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know what, what would you um, what would you what what would you want to know about my upbringing? So what would you want to know about the mystery that is me? Well, George, um, let's start off the state. So yeah, Pen- the the state of Pennsylvania, the woods for William Penn. Yes. Uh, how does it feel to be from like one of the most mid states in the country? It's a it's a fair question, fair question there, Sam. Um, I would say it feels pretty mid. Um, I specifically grew up in uh, Western PA, which uh, has often been called the South of the North. Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania, yeah. Um, it's number That's one. Well, I mean, it's number one uh, exports are uh, tractors and casual racism. No, when so. I was I was I drove through Butler County. I don't know if you know where that is. Yeah, I know Butler County. Yeah, I drove through there uh, and I saw a Nazi flag oh, on a billboard. Wow. There you go. Yeah, that was uh, uh, I think it's. I'm not sure. It used to be that Western Pennsylvania, in the modern era, had the highest concentration of of active KKK chapters. Um, I'm not sure if that's still the case. No, that's in uh, northeast Arkansas. The irony of that, too, like, Pennsylvania was literally part of the Union. They were fighting the Confederacy. No, it's uh, difficult to to wrap your head around. Yeah, that's... Um, And, no, so, I mean, I feel like I've gotten a little bit of a southern exposure, a little bit of southern comfort. I mean, you do have the tractor exports. What kind I mean, of tractors, though? Uh, I mean, you typically... If it's not John Deere, it's not... Worth well, you it. got your, your John Deere. You got your Husqvarna. You'll occasionally see a Ferrari tractor if somebody's really, really hey, busting out the dough. I'm guessing she really thinks your tractor's sexy. She does think my tractor's sexy. It does really turn her on. She's always staring at me as I'm chugging along. Um, but... Uh, no, I will say, you know, there's that, and then um, during the, it doesn't exactly make me a, a southern a southern boy, but it did give me a little bit more southern uh, southern exposure. I'm just remembering. Southern Flair? Southern Flair. I'm just remembering Southern Exposure is the name of a strip club near where I was living in the south. That's hilarious. Um, but it's, uh, but no, during the pandemic, um, I actually went and I lived in Hiawassee, Georgia, in Towns County mm. for... Uh, about a year. Why? Um, well, my parents have, uh, so there's a lake 
in Georgia. Uh, it's called Lake Chattooge. Uh When I first read it, I thought it was Lake Chattoogee, because that sounds a little more Southern, but uh, no, not the case. Um, so my parents actually, they haven't retired yet, but they're looking to retire. And they bought a lake house on Lake Chattooge, which was sitting empty. So in May of 2020, I was like, well, I could just sit in a room staring at the white walls of my apartment, or I could go stare at a lake. And so I went and I stared at a lake. You chose, chose right. Yeah. A very Henry David Thoreauian. Yeah, no, I, uh, I watched battles between ants and wrote down poems about the cruelty of ant war. That was Thoreau, right? So, that, that sounds like Thoreau. Okay. He, it was Walden, too. I don't know. Somebody wrote poems about ant war. Um, thrilling as that may sound. It does sound thrilling. Actually. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I have a couple of ants and they are all, they are professional. Um, every single time I think of like insects and an author, I'm always thinking of Kafka. Oh, Metamorphosis. Yeah. yeah. Or Ovid. Oh, yeah. yeah. From being from Pennsylvania and living in Georgia for a year, how would you say that uh, the sort of, I guess, cultural differences informed your attitude towards humanitarian work? Or no, not your attitude towards humanitarian work, but like sort of your perspective on humanitarian work. I guess there wasn't really like coming from Western Pennsylvania to Georgia, there's not really that many differences. Mm -hmm. There's like more churches per square mile than maybe I was accustomed to. Um, and uh, one thing I found was strange was like, I was like, oh, like Southern people, like Southern hospitality. Mm -hmm. like, and I did experience a lot of that from like old ladies, including like some old ladies who cat called me one time. That's fun. Um, uh, but, but they always give the best like pecan pies though. No, no, I was like taken like very good care of by like random old women I met who would bring me like dinner. Um, but like out and about, I was surprised. Like I'd, I'd walk past people and be like, oh, hey there, how's it going? Nothing. Where's that Southern? They, maybe they're just poor representatives of the South. Well, it really depends on like which part you go. Also, to. no one in Towns County is like from the South. Okay, yeah. okay. Northern Georgia doesn't count as Georgia. No, 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 it does. But, like, Towns County is kind of like where... It's kind of like how, like, people, like, move to Florida. Mm. Yeah. Okay, that's a fair assessment. Mm. Um, but, no, I guess the difference in resettlement work, there wasn't really... Um, there wasn't really any that, like, I particularly noticed. I think, really, in western Pennsylvania, like, I'd tell people, like, what I would do. And there wouldn't be, even though that's very, like, red, like, right-leaning, there mm -hmm. wouldn't be really any associated, like, follow-up comments. Also, like, here's something I've noticed about when I, like, talk about my job to people, like, in the South, like, in my family, or just, like, you know, people I went to school with. It's always, like, employment kind of seems to be, like, the most, like, I guess palatable part of humanitarian work to, like, right-wingers. Well, yeah, because it's, like... If it's like they, capitalism is like well, because it's like, oh, they're coming over here to work. That's good. People should work. I work forty hours a day in the or forty. Hours yeah, a day forty hours a day. day. Well, I work forty hours a day in the steel mill. <laughs> yeah. And everybody else should do the same thing. Anybody who comes over here should do the same thing. So mm -hmm. as long as they don't take my job. Yeah. So yeah. The, no. the work ethic idea, I think you're right. It's more palatable as opposed to like if you were to talk about things you do as a caseworker, like oh, they receive government cash benefits, like they receive free money mm -hmm. from big government. Yeah. Like I. I've, I've, like, talked about, like, the, like, uh, the work that, like, some of my clients do uh, to, like, members of my family, and I've just actively seen them become less racist <laughs> towards that particular group. It's just, like... No, so I think it's, like, so, like I was saying, in Western PA, you don't really get follow-up comments. You'd kind of be, like, oh, this is what I do, and they'd be, like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, in the South, they'll, like... They'll ask you questions like, oh, like, these people are being vetted, right? Or, like, mm -hmm. these people, when you bring them over, like, you, you're you doing this, 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 and this, right? Like, they weren't, like, angry about it, but they were more concerned about it. Yeah, and I've, I've had that conversation, too. It's, like, with, like, the Fox News people. Because, like, again, like, they're kind of, it's kind of like you're kind of victimized of, like, fear-mongering in that respect. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, you know, you have to kind of assuage that. 
and then as we've talked about before, kind of tell a story that kind of tugs at the that kind of tugs at the heartstrings, humanizes your clients, and sort of breaks that like uh, mythos that a person may have with respect to a humanitarian immigrant. Because you really, because like, and I you pray you've described it perfectly to me before, and I feel like use this in like interviews. Uh, I've been I've done like when people ask me why I work here because like employment you're giving people back their humanity. Yeah, I think it's just more of like, grand like where I was at in the south is very much a kind of a nice little liberal bubble. So like, all those questions, follow questions will be like, oh my god, that's fantastic. So do you do this with clients? Oh, you know you should come to my church. They actually do something similar to what you guys are doing. I think you'd be great. Yeah. So they kind of like are more involved in mission because again it's I always frame it as like you know I'm helping these people out who are who had no other choice but to flee their country Mm -hmm. and search for a new one and and also like what I like to do if you really wanted to if if we were doing ad copy right now (laughs) or like if we wanted to like write ad copy for employment as a like sector of humanitarian work what I would do is I would say employment putting the human in humanitarian Oh, and do more like employment, when the capitalism and humanitarian work. Employment, get that bread, son. Yeah, I like mine's mine's. I think yours is probably better, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, get to. You know, it's the same sentiment. I'm gonna get you bread like a duck, boy. (laughs) The um, (laughs) so no, really, the other. I guess the only other like notable thing, I, I guess, or difference, like in the in the South, is like you when you meet people and like you associate with them in general, but also in the South, you can kind of gate, you can kind of understand like, based on their reactions to certain things, how they'll react to other things. Mm -hmm. Like I did a a mail-in ballot when I was living in Georgia, for example. Mm -hmm. I talked to one of my neighbors at the time about the mail-in ballot and went on that whole, this whole big extended thing. And I was like, okay, maybe the way in which I describe my work to him or, or, you know, people I've talked to who are similar to him should take on, like, a different form. So it's like I did what I would like to call um, a selective description mm. of my job, which is instead of saying what I, when refugees come over to the United States, I help them find work, um, I said that I work with... Um, interpreters who supported the United States Army who are now uh, coming over and resettling in the United States. And it's like, that is not true, or sorry, that is true, but it's a small selection of the people that I work with. Yeah, and do you think that it's your, do you think like, you, we kind of, we as like uh, humanitarian workers, do we have like a responsibility to kind of tell tell a story to people outside of us in such a way that, like, kind of, you know, makes or humanizes our our clients instead of, like, selectively, like, kind of describing it? Or do you think that, like, you know, selectively describing it can kind of protect you I think in a it, certain way? I mean, I think, I think it is. Um, I think an aspect of it is protection because, and it's, like, I think it's fine if you work in the humanitarian sphere to do that because, obviously, like, no one... Um, should feel obligated to be like harassed or belittled like based upon what they do for a living mm-hmm. um, at the same time I think describing it in certain ways makes people more amenable to the idea of it and that gives you an opening to convince them that it may be more of a nuanced issue than they originally thought so it's like you think about, you know, you're like a, you know, like an old Southern guy, like the guy I talked to, and it's like, oh, like, people coming over, you know, from all these countries and, you know, taking our jobs, and I'm not, I don't, I don't support that at all, but then it's like, okay, you give them the nuance, you give, oh, these are actually people who had to leave their home because they supported the U.S. Army, mm-hmm. and it's like, then it becomes, like, tied to patriotism, then it becomes tied to this institution that they revere, and then when you kind of have like that access point, you can also sort of, because people are tribal, right? People yeah. other. But then when you talk about, you know, particular groups of refugees, you talk about like, you know, we're bringing over, um, you know, supporters of, you know, the United States government in Afghanistan, or we're bringing over um, 
Christians from Ethiopia, and then you have these things, and they're like, oh, there's Christians in Ethiopia? I didn't know the people that were coming over were Christians. And then you kind of like find these like connectors, and it's like, would it be the ideal situation for them to be wholly supportive of, of this kind of thing? Yes. Mm -hmm. But when you connect it to things that they value, then they'll value the thing that you're trying to kind of sell them on or express to them as being valuable or important. Well, also, you know, to sort of uh, sort of go against that, in a, not in a weird way, I completely agree with you, but also, like, we have stressful jobs. Yeah. You know, there's only so much you can, like, there's only so many conversations you can have with, like, old, older, older folks from the, or people from the older generation, and at a certain point, you know, like, why do I have to fight this, like, why do I have to go against this sort of, like, why, do, why is it my responsibility as a worker to also, like, shatter this, like, weird Fox Newsian, like, aura around my work? Yeah. That's how I view it, too, is, like, it is not my responsibility to basically teach you on why your, like, your viewpoints or racism is basically immoral and wrong. I don't care who, if you say that's your opinion, but, like, no, it's not. You're legit wrong. You should not be for any sort of racism or, like, Sort of discrimination based on any factor, but yeah, I think it, on that point, it's like if someone is wanting to learn more or actually have follow ups, then yes, you know, I will be more than happy to actually like provide information. But if you're just trying to be a about it, then no, I'm not gonna like give you any amount of my time because at that point, there's this. It can go on deaf ears. They don't really care. They just don't want to find something that they can just hang on and so they can keep on, like, their whole viewpoint intact. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's fair. It's not anybody, like, it's not anybody's responsibility to feel compelled to battle, to change people's opinions, like, people's, like, entrenched opinions. I think... Advocate. Yeah, advocate as much as you're willing to advocate with the understanding that all of some of your work may be in vain. And I feel like, you know, it's like the idea of, um, so just to give you like, it, everything is an uphill battle. You know, life is an uphill battle. Your settlement work is an uphill battle. Just to give you like the sense of the way I describe, you know, kind of continuing to fight that fight even though it may seem hopeless is I have described resettlement work um, uncharitably as uh, bashing your head against a wall and you can do fair, uh, fair assessment <laughs> so you can do that um, so let's say you know you're bashing your head against the wall your goal is to knock the wall down yeah, I thought the goal was to be not yourself unconscious. Well, you'll accomplish both. <laughs> um, you are just slamming your head into this wall again and again and again. And it has very little give. You're making no progress. Or it seems that way at first, but you continue. Small cracks start to form. Mm. Pieces chip off the wall. Over time, you will probably have damaged yourself so much over the course of hitting that wall that you'll need to stop and you'll need to either take a step back and start again or you'll need to stop entirely both are fair to do but at the end of the day when you step back from that wall entirely you look and you see hey maybe i didn't knock down the wall but there's pieces of it missing now mm -hmm. and then the next guy comes along who's willing to start where you stopped and he chips a little more of the wall away. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, what's really important for you if you're bashing your head against a wall is if you, as at the end of the day, you need to put bandages on it. Oh, you yeah. need to take care of yourself. It's going back to self-care. Exactly. Yeah. So you need to, you know, ice ice that head. Ice that skull. Not that type of ice, though. So, I mean, the good, the good ice. The one that comes out of the bridge, not the one that comes out of the board. Oh, I was talking. I thought you were talking about this kind of ice. Point well, my mean, wrist. What about a what about a delicious ice cold natural ice? Oh. Uh, that just sounds disgusting. No. Yeah, no, gentlemen, it's been good.
having this discussion with you. I'm happy to, to talk whenever. It's been an honor. Uh, I would, uh, you know, because we're, we're wrapping it up, I will give you the end. We were kind of going into my background. This is your, your final opportunity, open book, to ask anything about me that you want to know. And I'll communicate it to you and to the listeners. Well, uh, the thing, well, George, the thing I really want to know is and and also and of course, you know, I want to know how big is your well and I'd say about three times a day. Wow. Well, thank you. That was our interview with George Washington Hidalgo. Uh, and now I thanks think it's... so much for being on the phone. Yeah, thanks, George. Yeah, of course. And now it's time for... Burn-ins. Hey. I'm ready for burn-ins. I don't know. Just uh, talk about, like... Talk about anything. Let me, let me just think of, like... Let me just look at stuff. Oh, we can probably... Like, y'all hear about uh, Brazil's January 6th. That happened on January eighth. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. That's one of my favorite, uh, favorite like dumb president jokes. So it's like, uh, so Joe Biden. So someone goes to Joe Biden. It's like, okay. So two. So Joe Biden meets with uh, Brazilian diplomats, a couple of Brazilian diplomats, and they fly back to Brazil, right? And they're due to some engine failure. Their plane crashes in the ocean and they die. So someone goes, <clears throat> President Biden. Um, a couple. Uh, I have some bad news. Uh, two Brazilian people have died in a plane crash in the ocean, and Biden just kind of sits down, said on hand on his head, and goes, "My God, how many's a Brazilian?" <laughs> That's good. I like that. It's worked for like it worked for Trump, and it worked for Bush. It didn't really work for Obama. You're gonna you're gonna have to hope there's not a with it president uh, if you want to keep using that joke. But I think you're probably safe for the time being. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, until Pete Buttigieg in 2024. No. Uh, how many is a Brazilian? <laughs> My God, how many is a Brazilian? Oh, that uh, G.W. Bush. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. George Washington Bush. Who <laughs> <laughs> um, speaks Spanish. So, so back to, to January 6th, to electric Brazil-a-loo. 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 Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, that's the thing is like, it, that's the difference between here and Brazil is that it happened here. They're still having the trials to prosecute people, and people are still being tracked down and arrested. We're still having like those committee meetings. Yeah, and in Brazil, there were like busloads of people who were arrested like almost yeah. immediately. So that, see, that's the difference between like a left-wing government and just like modern government. Modern government's trying to appease everybody. Left-wing is just like yo. Basically, just shot yourself in your own foot. Is Lula even left wing though? Yeah. Yeah, Lula's pretty left wing. I mean, like, there's a difference between South American left wing and left wing left wing, but mm-hmm. I'd say Lula's pretty left wing. Yeah. I mean, pray. I mean, pray you lean left of Leon Trotsky, so I'm not really tired. So, <laughs> I mean, like, if you uh, say he's left leaning, I'll so take your word uh, for it. If you were ever um, assassinated with an ice axe in Mexico, what um, kind of ice? Uh, We're talking out of the freezer, ice on the wrist, natty ice. I don't know, an ice strong enough that they needed an axe to break it up, apparently. Yeah, honestly, I'm still left at going circles. Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, insurrections, like, notwithstanding, I mean, probably the whole, or my favorite part of the Brazil saga has been uh, just Jair Bolsonaro being Florida man now. Yeah. Just going to a... He's really getting the American experience. He's going to a KFC, chowing down on a bucket he got from the colonel. He is vaguely kind of meandering about a Publix, getting a Publix sub, which I'm jealous of. Pub subs, yeah. Pub subs are They're amazing. Amazing. So, I mean, uh, kudos to Jerry Bolsonaro for understanding, like, where the bangers are at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. He's just kind of... Apparently, he's sick now, though. Uh, I don't know what the deal is with that. Hey, I mean, he, he was a big advocate for ivermectin, so uh, eat some more of those horse tranquilizers there. No, it's horse dewormer. That doesn't make it any better. No, yeah. well, as, as horse, uh, as well, we could, t- oh, you know, George and I could tell you, you know, like, there's a big difference between a horse drink and a horse dewormer. Yeah, that's one of my, um, tangential, that's one of my, uh, 
one of my big purchases if I ever strike it rich. I'm going to get an Alcamza horse. Mm. Alcamza horse. It's a fun historical, historical aside for horse story. Horse historical aside. Horse historical. Is that um, so? You know, everybody's heard of like Arabian horses. They're kind of the most well-known, expensive, like well-regarded horses. Mm-hmm. Within Arabian horses, 2% of those are Alkamza horses, mm-hmm. which are considered the purest, blooded, most valuable horses in the world. And the story behind Alkamza horses is that the Prophet Muhammad had a herd of horses that he uh, was leading through the desert. And they, you know, obviously these horses were thirsty, so they started charging towards a watering hole sort of when they had access to one. But the Prophet Muhammad blew a horn and five of those horses listening to him, you know, the command of the horn being that, you know, they should come to him instead of going to the water. Five of that herd of horses came to him instead of going to the water. And those became the five foundational sires of the Alhamsa line. So it's bro. That explains why horses don't stop. They just <laughs> keep going. Who would have thought it was all because of Prophet Muhammad? Yeah, yeah Islam, horses, self care. We had a great episode. This is a good episode. Yeah, yeah, I know. We're covering a lot of bases. Yeah, I know. So I will say uh, something we didn't talk about um, in the uh, in the podcast, but I want to put out to the listeners out there, and you know, again. We are humanitarian people. We advocate for things. Um, Like, Islamophobia in the United States is very real. It's very prevalent. Um, I think that it's an important thing to to fight against. And I think it's important to take the time and kind of, you know, engage with people who practice. And not only that, but to, you know, we in the Western world are so focused on things in the Western world as being what is right and what's true and there's such like a rich history and culture um, not only of you know religious teachings but you know poems by like Rumi and uh, Khalil Al-Gibran and, and people like that so if you're coming out of this podcast and you're thinking like oh what should I uh, what what transcendental media should I you know engage with now that I've finished this week's episode of the Transcendental Media that is the Southern Fried Humanitarian Podcast. Why don't you give some Middle Eastern literature a shot? All right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing that delightful uh, anecdote to the show and for being part of like uh, our season opening episode as well. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. It's been an honor. I'm I'm, I'm happy. George, thanks again. And yeah, that's uh, that's all we got. Don't forget to uh, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Y'all be good here. Y'all be good.